Great, good. The, the only comment that I had was from my son, and he wanted to know why health care in America was a moral issue. Dad, it's an economic issue. It's not a moral issue. But, you know, when you realize how, how this thing is fueled by greed, really, on every level. I mean, and it's fueled by greed. And, and when you start and you think about that, I do believe it is a moral issue. And so, Zach, if you're out there, anyway, we got work to do tonight. We got some good work to do. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew, the 27th chapter. Boy, we're getting toward the end of Matthew. And when we're done with Matthew, we're going to go all the way back to where we were in the Old Testament, the book of Job. Keep plugging away there. Matthew, we're in chapter 27. and We're going to begin tonight in verse 1. Two more weeks in the Gospel of Matthew. Tonight we have some, some serious subject matter, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And we're going to set a record tonight. 38 pictures, Lissa told me. 38 pictures. So you're going to have your head in the Bible and your head up looking at the pictures. And, and hopefully you'll get a lot out of tonight's Bible study. That's our goal. In fact, our goal is even more ambitious than that. I hope you'll leave tonight more in love with Jesus. And I hope you'll leave tonight with a greater understanding, a deeper understanding of what our Lord Jesus Christ did for us. It happened. Blood and sweat and tears and suffering and nails and pain and wood. It happened. And He did it for you. So Lord, make us grateful people. Help us to understand. Help us to look past the Bible stories that we've heard told to us by others and help us, Lord, to delve into the Word for ourselves tonight and discover just what You did for us, the monumental work that You did upon the cross. And help us, Lord, to leave here tonight knowing that You did it for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Accused people that are clearly innocent of the accusations usually look forward to their day in court. A trial should bring out all the facts and prove them not guilty. But that didn't happen in the case of Jesus of Nazareth versus the Jewish Sanhedrin. Jesus was chained and herded before a sham jury and a bigoted judge. He was treated as a criminal, lied about, and sentenced to death. His trial was the greatest travesty of justice the world has ever seen. And even though the official proceedings of this trial were over long ago, please understand that a verdict still gets cast again and again and again for every man and woman and boy and girl who have ever lived, sits in the jury box and casts a vote in this case of the Jewish Sanhedrin versus Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, the question Pilate will ask the Jews in our study tonight is the question that every human being must answer. What then shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? What will you do with Jesus 
after tonight's study. Well, verse 1 tells us, When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. Remember, it was against Jewish law to render capital decisions at night. This is why the Sanhedrin hastily meets in the morning to make their decision official. It was early. The rooster had just crowed. It was probably around 5 a.m. The Jewish leaders want to get this whole ugly affair over as soon as they can. And when they had bound Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Now, prior to Pilate, the Roman procurators were kind to the Jews. They were respectful of their culture and their religion. And they were careful not to offend Jewish sensibilities, but Pilate was different. Pilate was deliberately antagonistic. He hated the Jewish way of life, and he was openly hostile to their religion. When he arrived in Palestine in 26 AD, he led his soldiers into Jerusalem under the Roman banner. The Roman flag carried an image of the emperor from Rome. The Jews, of course, considered any image a form of idolatry, and it created an uproar against Pilate. You see, the procurator's job was to keep the peace. Pilate had done just the opposite. On another occasion, Pilate built an aqueduct from northern Israel down to Jerusalem. It was a good idea, and it was a tremendous feat of engineering. But Pilate robbed the temple to pay for the construction. Once again, the Jews revolted, and word got back to Rome. Pilate was a clumsy, heavy-handed man, and he was eventually dismissed by the Romans By this point, there were two strikes against him, and he doesn't want to strike out. Pilate is in a conciliatory mood. He's on the political hot seat, and he's inclined to do just about anything the Jews want him to do to keep the peace and thus keep his job. Verse 3 shifts scenes. Then Judas, his betrayer, Jesus' betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful, And brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. You know, the night before had been a busy, busy night for the Jewish leaders. It had been an exhausting night for Jesus. It had been a humbling night for Peter. And it had been a sleepless night for Judas. Judas could have pacified his conscience if he had seen Jesus do one dishonest act. But he hadn't. Jesus had been sinless. He spent the whole night thinking back on a hypocritical act, on an immoral act that Jesus might have done. But as he reflected back on his days with Jesus, he realized that Jesus had done nothing wrong at all. That he had truly betrayed innocent blood. And Judas tries to rid himself of this guilt at first by discarding the blood money. He goes back into the temple and he throws down the pieces of silver in the temple and he departs. Here's proof that forgiveness can't be bought. If it could have, Judas would have bought it for these 30 pieces of silver. But restitution alone never removes guilt. Restitution without repentance is worthless. 
and only leads to more despair. We're told that Judas went out and he hanged himself. Deuteronomy 19 verse 16 says that a false witness who frames an innocent person is to receive the same punishment as the accused. Jesus was nailed to a tree. Judas hung from a tree. There's no doubt Judas was sorry for what he had done. But there's also no indication that he was ever truly repentant. Guys, repentance is the willingness to change. I meet folks all the time who are disappointed, who are depressed about the mess they've made of their lives. But they refuse to do anything about it. They refuse to change. They don't want to change. They like wallowing in the mire. They would rather languish in their mess. Judas was the classic example of much remorse with no repentance. Verse 6, But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought them, bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day, to the time of the writing. A potter's field was next to the potter's shop, obviously. And when he cracked a pot or when he spun a mistake, he would take and he would throw out the clay into the field. You couldn't grow anything in a field of sun-dried, sun-baked clay. All the potter's field was good for was an indigent graveyard. And yet, isn't it interesting? The blood money used to betray Jesus was used to buy a potter's field full of cracked pots. I hope you realize that Jesus is still into purchasing cracked pots. You and me. We're the biggest of the crackpots. Then it was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was, who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Of course, this was all done according to the Old Testament, according to prophecy. This verse is actually quoted in Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13, rather than Jeremiah. And some have jumped to the conclusion that the Bible is in error here. Not so fast. Understand that the prophetical portion of the Jewish Old Testament began with the book of Jeremiah. So often the name Jeremiah was used for that whole section of Scripture, not just the one particular book written by Jeremiah. The same is true with the name Psalms. It spoke of a single book, and yet it also identified the whole body of poetical books. Verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And so Jesus said to him, It is as you say. About 13 years earlier, in 19 AD, the Romans had stripped the Jews of their right to capital punishment. The Jews now needed Roman permission to carry out an execution. And to gain Pilate's cooperation, they need to prove that Jesus is a threat to Rome. Rome, of course, was ruled by an emperor. To claim to be a king was a threat to the authority of Caesar Tiberius. At least that's how the Jews were hoping that Pilate would see it. That's why he asked, are you the king of the Jews? And when he had been accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. 
Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Remember Isaiah 53, verse 7, it predicted to the Messiah, As a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. God was his defense. And he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Luke 23 tells us that at this point, one of the Jews mentions that Jesus is from Galilee. Pilate immediately thinks of the ruler of Galilee, Herod Antipas, and he realizes that Herod is in town. Herod was a puppet ruler who ruled over the northern region. And so Pilate decides to pass off his problem to Herod Herod Antipas of Galilee. It doesn't work, though. Herod interviews him, he quizzes him, he mocks him, he abuses Jesus, but then Herod ships him back to Pilate. That's where we pick it up in verse 15. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. Barabbas was a terrorist. He was a leader in the local militia. Barabbas was a Timothy McVeigh type of character. He was a crazed, hate-filled, pseudo-patriotic nut who blew up daycare centers and government buildings. That was Barabbas. The politician in Pilate, he sensed that the Jews wanted to use him to do their bidding. Yet there was something in Jesus that caused Pilate to believe in his innocence. He didn't want to offend the Jews, but he also wanted to squirm out of the situation. He didn't want to condemn Jesus. Thus, he pulls up this custom of releasing a prisoner at the Passover. Surely. He thinks, good Jews will never want Barabbas back on the streets. He's a threat to women and children. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent, that the Jews had a grudge against him. And so while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, and boy, guys, you need to listen to your wife. If you get nothing else out of this, learn that lesson. Listen to your wife. God speaks to your wife sometimes so she can speak to you. He's sitting on the judgment seat, and that's when his wife says to him, Have nothing to do with that just man. For I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Now, Mrs. Pilate was actually named Claudia Procula. She was the daughter, we understand, of Caesar Augustus. In fact, it was through her that Pilate had secured this position of procurator. She was a woman of influence. Historical sources say that by this time, Claudia had actually converted to Judaism. And later, after the resurrection of Jesus, she would go on to become a Christian. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus, 
who is called Christ. And they all said to him, let him be crucified. And at this point, the judge, Pilate, becomes the defense attorney. It's interesting. The governor said, why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more saying, let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person you see to it. Pilate acted in fear. To appease the crowds, he condemned an innocent man. And Pilate tries to wash away his guilt with a water basin and a towel. But it didn't work, did it? You see, only the blood of Jesus can wash away the guilt of his rejection. It's interesting, after the crucifixion, Pilate was removed from office by the Romans and sent back to Rome. Church historian Eusebius records that Pilate was so tormented by his guilty conscience that for the rest of his life he struggled with emotional problems. He ended up committing suicide. Pilate kept his job by selling out Jesus. But in the end, he lost not only his job, but his sanity and his very life. It reminds us of the words of Jesus. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. All the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. And Jews down through the centuries have regretted this cry. For 2,000 years, Hebrew people have suffered over and over for their rejection of the Messiah. Driven from their land in 70 A.D., they've wandered the world for the last two millenniums. If only the crowd that day had realized what they were wishing on themselves and on their offspring. And I think this is a warning to parents. Parent, you do leave a legacy. Either good or bad. But you do leave to your children a legacy. The decisions that we make not only affect us, but they affect our kids. Even our kids' kids. The decisions that we make often set a pattern for generations to come. Be careful. Then Pilate released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus. And to read those words, scourged. It should send goosebumps up and down your spine. The scourging, you see, had a nickname. It was called the halfway death. Many victims who were scourged never survived the ordeal. It was so brutal. The Roman scourge, or flagellum, consisted of 12 to 13 leather thongs attached to a single handle. A lead ball was attached to the end of the cords, and pieces of glass or metal or ivory were embedded in the thongs between the ball and the hammer. The victim was tied by his wrists and dangled about a foot off the ground. The beating consisted usually of 39 lashes with the flagellum. The first blows caused welts to form on the shoulders and the back. By the seventh or eighth blow, the glass and the metal had start, started cutting welts and 
churning up the muscle. It was not uncommon for a rib bone to fly off the body after one of these blows. Before long, the back had a texture of hamburger. Some of the eternal, internal organs were exposed. At the conclusion of the beating, the victim was cut down and he would hit the pavement in a puddle of his own urine and feces and sweat and blood. Eusebius writes of martyrs who endured such beatings. They were torn by scourges down to deep-seated veins and arteries so that the hidden contents of the recesses of their bodies, their entrails and organs were exposed to sight. This was the scourging that Jesus endured. After the scourging, we're told Pilate delivered Jesus to be crucified. This scourging was just the beginning of the horrors that Jesus would endure on the cross. After the torturous scourging, then the, Rome, the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. Praetorium is a Greek word for a general's tent or his military headquarters. Most scholars believe that the trial of Jesus took place in the fortress of Antonio, located on the Temple Mount, on the north uh, west end of the Temple Mount, in the Temple precincts. It was from the fortress of Antonio that the Romans could sort of police the crowds that would gather there in the Temple. Today, when you go to Old Jerusalem, you can visit a place called the Lithostrata, this, this lithostrata is the Greek word for raised pavement. And today it's what's left of the fortress of Antonio. It's the pavement on which Jesus was tried and scourged. You go to this place and you walk down several feet below street level. And there you can stand right on the pavement. You can walk over the very stones over which Jesus was tried by Pilate and then scourged at his order. The reddish stones give the impression that the stones there are stained with blood. And for me, the lithostrata is holy ground. It's a powerful place for reflection. It was there that they stripped him. And they put a scarlet robe on him. And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. This Greek word translated thorns can mean briars. And it can refer to any number of plants that grow around Jerusalem. The briars, though, you can bet, were sharp and thick. They penetrated the skin like little daggers. Blood is now streaming down Jesus' face, into his eyes, onto his cheeks. Remember, the crown of thorns was the only crown that ever adorned Jesus' brow. And a reed they put in his right hand. This was a mock scepter. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Now at the lithostratus, carved into the stones, you find lines and circles that make up a game that the Roman soldiers commonly played. It's called the game of the king. This is why the mock robe and the crown of thorns and the reed for a scepter were put on the victim. Here's a picture. Notice the circle around the, the center. The circle represents the crown. Notice the B, the little initial B down there at the bottom. B is an initial for basilic, basilicus, 
which is Latin for the word king. The scorpion that you see over on the right-hand side was a symbol for the Roman legions. The double square represents the die that the soldiers toss to play the game. And the horizontal line that sort of runs through the center of the circle is, was called the line of life. Later, off of this picture, a sword crosses the line of life, which is where the victim actually died and lost his life. To me, it adds to the horror of it all to realize that the Roman soldiers were actually playing a game while Jesus was being crucified. To them, they were making sport while they were killing God. Can you imagine? Well, then they spat on him. And they took the reed and struck him on the head. Imagine spitting in the face of God. Then they roughed him up some more. And Isaiah 50 verse 6 gives us a detail of Jesus' torture that, by the way, is never mentioned in the Gospels. Isaiah saw it prophetically. They plucked out his beard. His face was severely disfigured. I remember when Natalie was little, Zach was little, I had a beard during those days. And sometimes they'd put their little hand up into my beard and you know, they had that little clutching reflex, you know, that grasping reflex. And so they'd grab a handful of hair and then they'd try to rip it out of my face, you know. And boy, did it hurt. And they didn't even come close to ripping it off. But it hurt just to t pull on it, just to tuck it. Can you imagine? Can you imagine those soldiers grabbing his beard, ripping it out of his skin? His face was severely disfigured. Add it all up. And Jesus was beaten beyond recognition. He looked like a boxer who'd gone 15 rounds and lost, or the victim of an airplane crash. Jesus' rugged body, his kind features had been reduced to a quivering mass of bloody tissue. You know, if there had been a funeral, I have no doubt the family would have requested a closed casket. Isaiah 52 verse 14 tells us, his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Hebrew scholars Kyle and Delich, they translate the verse, He was so disfigured, his appearance was not human, and his form not like that of the children of men. In other words, Jesus looked more like a monster than a man. If you had been there that day, the sight of Jesus would have been repulsive. It's possible you would have vomited your lunch. The scene was so gross, the producers would have refused to roll the footage during the nightly news. Verse 31. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Jesus probably was clothed with what the Romans called the short cloak. It was basically a loincloth. The short cloak was enough to cover the victim's genitals. The Romans dressed their victim in the short cloak, not to offend the Jewish sense of modesty. Jesus was practically naked when he was crucified. And this is no accident, I think. Have you noticed how people tend to identify themselves by the clothes they wear? Have you noticed that? 
Now think about that in relationship to Jesus. If Jesus had been crucified in a three-piece suit, a lot of you hippies couldn't relate to him. If Jesus had been crucified in faded jeans, a lot of you corporate executives couldn't relate to him. This is why God chose to clothe Jesus in near nakedness. Why? So that all people everywhere, as long as they are humble people, could identify with Jesus. Now as they came out, probably out of the city, and this too, of course, was prophetic. You remember Hebrews 13. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. It was prophetic that Jesus too was disposed of outside the camp. So they leave the city. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. Here's how it usually happened. The victim was accompanied by, to his execution by four Roman soldiers. They were called a quaternion. Q-U-A-T-E-R-I-O-N. Quaternion. This execution party was led by a man with a plaque. And on that plaque were written the victim's crimes. He was preceded by two soldiers who led the way and then are led in front of the victim and then two soldiers who were behind the victim. And of course, the procession always took the long way around. Why? The scourged victim was paraded through the streets as a lesson to the masses. This whole thing was an example. The Romans wanted the people to fear their power and to fear their authority and to realize that this same thing could happen to them if they defied Roman rule. When Jesus left Pilate's judgment hall, he carried the instrument of his execution. The patibulum, or the crossbeam, was strapped to his shoulders. It tipped the scales around 100 pounds. And Jesus, struggling with the loss of blood, after the beating, struggling to hold up this cross member, he buckled under the weight of the beam. By this point, of course, Jesus was completely exhausted. He'd had a sleepless night. He had been in great agony. Remember, in the garden, he had perspired so profusely that we're told his sweat was like great drops of blood. He was dehydrated, no doubt. Even more so, he had had a large loss of blood. Jesus had just endured this Roman flagellation. He was beaten by the Jews as well. Jesus was a strong man. But now, under the weight of this beam, he collapses. He can't carry the patibulum another step. And that's when a man in the crowd, a man by the name of Simon, he was from Cyrene in North Africa, ancient Libya. He was probably a Jew on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Simon had come to Jerusalem to offer his sacrifice, to celebrate the Passover. This was probably something he had saved for his whole life. This was a pilgrimage to worship God at the Holy Temple. Mark's Gospel says that Simon was just passing by. He was just walking on his way somewhere else. 
when suddenly his journey and his life become permanently interrupted. He feels the press, the point of a Roman spear on his shoulder. He's grabbed by a soldier and he's pushed out into the street. And this hundred pound patibulum, this roughed out piece of wood, is hoisted onto his shoulders. He now carries the cross that Jesus carries for him. And his short journey with Jesus will change his life forever. Again, Mark identifies Simon as the father of Alexander and Rufus. That's interesting. Mark's gospel was written to the Christians at Rome who must have known these men or Mark wouldn't have mentioned them, Alexander and Rufus. In fact, Romans 16 verse 13 notes that Rufus and his mother were believers in the church at Rome. Put all that together. It's likely that Simon's experience led to his conversion. When he returned to Cyrene, he shared the good news of Jesus to his whole family and they became believers. Later they migrated to Rome. It's interesting that the early church saw a vibrant Christian community develop in North Africa and its founder was probably Simon the Cyrene. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull. Golgotha is Aramaic for place of the skull. When Jerome translated the Bible into Latin, he used the Latin word calvaria or calvary. Today, there is a place just north of the old city and the Temple Mount. It's just outside the city wall. It's called Skull Hill. It was formerly Herod's rock quarry where he quarried rocks to use in his building projects. Excavations there have left a depression in the mountainside that looks like a skull. There are actually several sites where Jesus could have been crucified, but to me, this is the most likely. Skull Hill is right next to the road that leaves Jerusalem and snakes its way to Damascus. The Romans would always conduct their executions, their crucifixions next to roads. They wanted the passers-by to see the victim. Today, this area, by the way, is still a traffic hub. It's the site of an Arab bus terminal. Jesus was was crucified either by the road at eye level, which would have been shocking, or on the hill where everyone could see up above the road. Verse 34 tells us that at the execution site, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he spit it out and he would not drink it. Now, gall is the same word that's translated myrrh in other places. It was a pain-deadening narcotic. Romans gave their victims this stupefying potion, not so much as an act of mercy. It was given to prolong their death. It made the execution more of a spectacle. You know, most victims took the narcotic to knock the edge off the pain, but not Jesus. Understand this. Jesus went to the cross to bear the full brunt of our sin he didn't want to knock off the edge he wanted to bear the full weight of your sin and my sin and the sin of this world he bore every ounce of our pain and our punishment by himself hey there is no volume here for the savior verse 34 says simply then they crucified 
Look at him now. His body hangs from the crossbeam. His legs are pushed up so his heels are just under his buttocks. The weight of his body is supported. It's hanging on a seven-inch iron spike that has been driven into his hands. A single spike has been driven through both heels. His two most sensitive nerve centers are now throbbing in excruciating pain, his hands and his feet. As his arms fatigue, cramps begin to sweep through the muscles. He can take in air, but to exhale, he has to push himself up on the spikes. It's a painful struggle. It's a struggle just to breathe. In fact, most crucifixions ended with the victim's asphyxiation. They smothered to death. Add to this the pain of Jesus' lacerated back. Every time he takes a breath, he rubs his his back with its exposed flesh and organs and bones and and tissues. He, He rubs it up and down on the rough cut timber. And this goes on. Not for minutes, but for long, long hours. Here's another agony. A deep crushing begins in Jesus' chest. The sack around the heart, it's called the pericardium, it slowly begins to fill with serum and it compresses the heart. You see, a squeezed heart struggles to pump the thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are now frantically gasping for air. Jesus is about to die. In Jesus' case, the cause of death was not asphyxiation. John 19 verse 34 tells us that a Roman soldier thrust a spear in Jesus' side. And you remember what came out? A mixture of blood and water. This only occurs when the heart ruptures. Jesus literally died of a broken heart. Roman order, Cicero, called crucifixion the cruelest and most frightening form of execution ever invented by man. Cultured Romans refused to even say the word cross. And it makes you wonder, doesn't it? If Jesus had to die, why did God choose such a gruesome, awesome method of execution? Why didn't God choose a more humane method? The gas chamber, a firing squad, an electric chair, maybe even lethal injection. Something quick and easy and painless. Well, I'll tell you why. Our sin is never quick and easy and painless. Our sin not only breaks God's laws, it is is an affront to His honor, and even worse, it breaks God's heart. God chose the cross because He knows the cross is what our sin deserves. You know, sometimes we think we're not so bad. We're all pretty good guys. Until we look at the cross. Until we see what we really deserved. Hey, the the cross teaches us two things. It teaches us the severity of our sin. And then the flip side. It teaches us the sincerity of God's love. That despite what we deserve, He would bear the penalty for us. And take on that burden for himself. Verse 35. And they divided his garments, casting lots. 
that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Matthew quotes Psalm 22, verse 18. Once again, these details were prophesied beforehand. And how sad. While Jesus is suffering on the cross, these callous Roman soldiers who've, who've seen it all as a game, now they, they sum it up by shooting craps for his cloak, throwing dice, gambling off his coat. They don't show the Savior the slightest slither of sympathy. And then they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. The wooden plaque was called the Titleist. Not the golf ball, but the plaque. And on it, the Romans would list the crimes of the accused. John's Gospel tells us that, that on Jesus' plaque were written the words, Jesus, or we're told it right here, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. What John's Gospel tells us is that this so infuriated the Jews that when they read it, they went to Pilate and they demanded that he change what was on the plaque. They wanted him to put, he said, I am King of the Jews. Not, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And of course, Pilate answered them, what I have written, I have written. And he left him. In the end, the Jews couldn't silence Jesus' true identity. And when Jesus returns at the end of the age, we'll see a similar declaration, not on a plaque, but on his side. But this time, not just King of the Jews, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and the other on the left. And we know the identity of at least one of these men. For one of the thieves on the cross was the Apostle Paul's father. We know this from Romans 6, verse 6. There Paul says his old man was crucified with Christ. So, just trying to throw a little levity to kind of lighten things up here a little bit. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the King of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. Notice again, the Jews wanted a Christ. They just didn't want a crucified Christ. You see, Jesus was proving that He was the Messiah by going to the cross. But in their minds, Messiahship meant coming down from the cross. It meant miracles, not sacrifice. They didn't think the Messiah would have anything to do with a bloody cross. And you know what? 2,000 years later... Not much has changed. People today still have the same mindset. They want their heroes. They want someone who will exemplify the indomitable human spirit. They want someone who will showcase human potential. 
They want a hero who demonstrates what's best and highest in mankind, who aspires the rest of us to greatness, who makes us all feel good about ourselves. People today have no problem pursuing a Christ consciousness. They don't mind Jesus as a spirit guide or as the epitome of human self-actualization or some good example of moral behavior. But a crucified Christ, now that's another matter. For a crucified Christ means that there's a problem. That everything with mankind is not alright. That we can't just go on and feel good about ourselves. A crucified Christ means that we have sinned. That we have gone astray. And that God in His mercy is trying to redeem us. A crucified Christ highlights human depravity, not human potential. Folks today, like Jews of old, They want a Christ without a cross. The mocking crowd continued to shout at Jesus in verse 43. He trusted in God. Let Him deliver Him now if He will have Him. For He said, I am the Son of God. And even the robbers who were crucified with Him reviled Him with the same thing. Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, There was darkness over all the land. The sixth hour of the day was noon. The ninth hour was 3 p.m. So for three full hours, the world was blanketed with a supernatural darkness. It was midnight at midday. The Greek word translated land is the word geo from which we get our word geography. It implies a worldwide darkness. You remember when Jesus was born, when the light of God came into the world, a star was seen shining in the eastern sky. It guided the wise men to come and worship Jesus. Now when Jesus dies, the sky turns black. The light has been snuffed out. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Jesus spoke in Aramaic, which was the language of the common people. And some of the priests standing around, when they heard that, said, This man is calling for Elijah. Of course, his cry had nothing to do with Elijah. They had misunderstood. The words Jesus cries out on the cross are the opening lines of Psalm 22. When you get home tonight, read it. It's a psalm about the cross. In this psalm, we get a remarkable description of the details and the sufferings of the Messiah over a thousand years before He was crucified. Actually, before the Romans even invented crucifixion, or the Persians. In these final utterances now, Jesus is going to be revealing His true identity He is going to be hearkening back to Scripture. He is going to be relating his experience on the cross to Old Testament prophecy. And any student of Scripture, any Jew that was well-versed in his Bible at the time would have heard these words and would have identified what was happening with what had been written of old by the prophets. It was Jesus' way of identifying himself to the masses, to the crowds. Now Jesus cried, his cry, My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? To me represents one of the most mysterious moments in all of history.
somehow on the cross, God the Son became alienated from God the Father. Somehow, God became severed from God. The wages of sin is death. And death is what? It's separation. Physical death is when my spirit separates from my body. But spiritual death is when I'm separated from God. And for Jesus to bear the burden of sin, to bear the penalty of sin, He became separated from His Father so that you and I could be reunited. In John 8 verse 29, Jesus said, He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please Him. Think of this. From eternity past, Jesus had enjoyed perfect, unbroken harmony with His Father. Now suddenly, He is stung by His Father's rejection. Sin has come upon Him. When Jesus shrieked, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think at that moment the sins of all men were thrust upon His sacrificial shoulders. At that moment the Lamb received His load. Remember, Jesus was the spotless Lamb of God. Morally, His heart was as tender as a baby's soft skin. Think of the shock it would have been to His system for a mere speck of sin to fall on Him. But imagine this. Imagine the piercing fright. Imagine the staggering horror of suddenly Jesus sensing the sin of the whole world. I'm talking the sin of the rapist and the serial killer and the child molester and the secret gossip and the greedy betrayer. Suddenly the sin of all mankind is thrust upon His innocent shoulders. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 21 sums it up. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Jesus was God. He never ceased being God. He lived forever with the Father in warm, unbroken fellowship. Yet for a moment, the Son of God became an orphan child. God was separated from God. So that we could be reunited to him. When Zach was two years old. He was hospitalized with an infection. The doctors wanted to feed him some antibiotics through an IV. And I'll never forget sitting in the room there. The nurse told us we needed to leave. She said that inserting the IV into little Zach's arm. Would be painful for him. And she didn't and we didn't want him to associate that pain with us. And so it was important that we would leave the room. Well, being a nurse, Kathy was smart. She knew what was coming. And so she walked back down the hall to the room. But I stood just outside the door as close to my little buddy as possible. I got to tell you, I wasn't prepared for what happened. Suddenly, the screaming started. And I will never forget Zach shouting, I want my daddy. I want my daddy. I'm telling you. I could have clawed through that door. And I don't have any fingernails. I could have jerked that door off its hinges, but I didn't. And why? Love made me wait until the procedure was over. And standing in the hall that day, tears started rolling down my cheeks. For God spoke to my heart and said, Sandy, now you know what I endured when my son died for you my God my God daddy I want my daddy 
And yet God stood outside the door. And why? Because love waited until the procedure was over. His love for you. His love for me. I've never known his love as strong as I did that day. Love for you and me caused the Father to wait just outside the door. Verse 48. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. And the rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. This wine lacked the narcotic. And Jesus took this sponge to his to moisten his lips so that he could utter his final words. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Notice this. Jesus' life was not taken from him. He dismissed his spirit. He died voluntarily. He gave up his life. It was never taken from him. Verse 51. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Snap! The veil just tore. And the earth quaked and the rocks were split. Crackle! And the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised or popped out of the ground. Snap, crackle, pop. There you have it. How do you know you've got real Rice Krispies? How do you know? There are all kinds of cheap imitations on the market. How do you know you got the real thing? you got to listen. Snap, crackle, pop. How do you know you got the real Messiah? There was a snap. The veil in the temple tore in two. There was a crackle. The rocks, the nature itself quaked and split. And, and, And then there was a pop. Some of those that had been waiting on Jesus had some mini resurrections right around Jerusalem there at that time. Snap. The veil in the temple was colossal, 60 foot high by 30 foot wide by 10 foot thick. It required 300 priests to move. And it was a symbol of our separation from God. Man was barred from God's presence until something was done to satisfy his righteousness. That's why when Jesus died, this veil split in two. On the cross, the penalty for sin had been paid in full. Forgiveness was earned. Now God is holding open house. He is inviting us into His presence. Now through Jesus, we can come boldly to the throne of grace to find help in time of need. Anytime, place. we can come to God through Jesus Christ. Notice too, we're told the veil split from top to bottom. Notice the detail. Not bottom to top, but top to bottom. God is very exact in His typology. Salvation always flows downward, not upward. Salvation is always a top-down thing. Our salvation is the result of God's grace and Jesus' work, not our own work. Notice, snap, then crackle. The earthquakes, the rocks split. When God gave the old covenant on Mount Sinai, the earth shook. Now it applauds again at the new covenant. You see, man's sin produced an adverse effect on all nature. Thorns and thistles made the ground harder to till. At the cross, even nature itself sees its salvation. This is a preview of coming attractions. The cross will ultimately liberate all of nature. And the rocks cried out and began to clap in praise of what had happened. And then pop. 
Several of the tombstones blew off the mouths of the graves. Three days later, there were even a number of impromptu resurrections. It was proof that the death of Jesus meant life for all who would believe in Him. That's why I say, snap, crackle, pop. You got the real Messiah. What a day it was. Verse 53. And coming out of the graves after His resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And this was wild. People who were dead five years, 500 years, 50 years, who knows? People who had been dead were now resurrected and they were seen cruising the streets of Jerusalem. You see, when Jesus rose from the dead, He took with Him into the presence of God those Old Testament saints who had been in Hades waiting on His salvation. Some of them must have stopped off for a short visit on earth. And so, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. Hey, this, this was a, a centurion, the equivalent to a sergeant. I mean, this is a battle-scarred sergeant, a centurion. This was a man who knew men. He commanded men. He fought with men and against men. He knew men. And he knew that Jesus was no ordinary man. And that's why he said, truly, this was the Son of God. And that's where we'll stop tonight. Pretty cool picture. Did, did, did you put the last picture back up, Listen, I thought that was a pretty cool picture. You know what?